In this video, we're going to discuss why auditing is so important. So auditing is absolutely fundamental to the success of financial markets. Some people think that auditing only exists because it's required. And that's true to the extent that, for example, in the United States, uh, companies that are publicly traded are required to file audited financial statements with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Okay, Not all companies are required to have their financial statements audited. If you have a small privately owned bakery, they're not actually forced to go and, and have their financial statements audited. But even in those cases, some of those companies will decide voluntarily that they want to have their financial statements audited. And even before the SEC was created and before companies that were publicly traded in the U.S. were actually required uh, to have their financial statements audited, many firms would voluntarily have their financial statements audited. The majority of companies on the New York Stock Exchange uh, would have their, their financial statements audited. So why is this the case? Why would a company actually want to have their financial statements audited even if they're not required to do so and the answer is is that it makes the the numbers in the financial statements more credible okay so if we're thinking about the balance sheet and the income statement and so forth these different financial statements make representations about the financial health of the company how much cash the company has what is their accounts receivable balance how profitable was the company and so forth and nobody is going to believe these representations unless we have an objective third party so we bring in a CPA and they come in and say okay we've done some tests and we look and we've seen that actually yes you can trust the financial information in these financial statements so auditing is adding value it's creating value for financial markets by increasing the amount to which investors and creditors can actually trust the financial information that they're being given by management now why does that who cares why is that important because investors and creditors can then make better decisions about how to allocate their capital for example if you are thinking of buying a business and you want to know okay how profitable is this business and you take a look at some financial statements of the business how do you know you can trust those financial statements doesn't the owner of that business have an incentive to make the company look more profitable than what it actually is yes they do okay so you're not just going to believe that owner and everything they say you're going to say look i want these financial statements to actually be audited so i know i can trust the information you're giving me and if you're thinking about buying shares of stock in a publicly traded company or if you're thinking of lending money to a company right if if we've got a large bank that's thinking about lending money to a firm they're going to want to see financial statements and not just any financial statements they want financial information that has actually been audited so that they know they can trust it and they say okay this information is credible now we're willing to make a loan or invest in this company or so forth okay so audits aren't just there because they're required uh, to be done but in some case the companies will actually go and voluntarily say they want an audit done now let me take let me just show you an income statement it's actually three years of income statements okay from a company uh, so 2000 1999 and 1998 and so we see here's the revenue so you see the revenue was increasing okay so these amounts are in millions so we started at 31 billion went to 40 billion and then went to 100 billion so we've got increasing revenue for this company okay and now if we look at their profitability if we look at the profitability we see that the profitability started at 700 million went to 893 million and then went up to 979 million 
So these are representations that are being made by management. The management is saying, look, look, our revenue is increasing and we've got very high revenue, $100 billion, and it's been increasing over time. We have an upward trend. Profitability is increasing. So management is making all of these representations, trying to get you to think, hey, look, this company is doing great. Now, if there was no audit at all of this information, you might say, well, how do I know that I can actually trust any of this information? How do I know this is really $100 billion? Maybe it's actually their revenue was $30 billion and they're lying to me. Or maybe they made a mistake, right? There could be fraud or there could be an error. So you don't know if you can actually trust this, this number, okay, if the information hasn't been audited. And it can't just be that somebody just signs it and says, okay, look, I've audited it. It has to be a good quality audit. You have to be able to actually trust the auditor. You have to be able to trust the auditor and know that that auditor, that third party that is coming in and looking at these financial statements is actually giving you a legitimate opinion that they've actually went and tested and said, okay, is this in fact $100 billion of revenue? Because sometimes we have what's called an audit failure where the auditor didn't properly do tests or and so forth. And if you want to know the name of the company here for these financial statements, the name of this company is Enron. And it turns out that we could not trust this financial information. And then in fact, this revenue number was overstated. The company's profitability was overstated. Their liabilities on their balance sheet were understated. So we can't trust any of this financial information. And in fact, Enron had an auditor, which was called Arthur Anderson. Arthur Anderson ended up being indicted related to the audit with Enron and, and so forth because of their bad behavior. Now, what happened? You say, well, who cares? Why does this matter? And so forth that we couldn't trust this information. Well, some people lost millions of dollars. There were a lot of people, even some employees and stuff, had some of their life savings tied up in the Enron stock. And people thought that they could trust these numbers. They thought, okay, I can I can trust this and the information has been audited and so forth. But because it wasn't actually good quality audit and we couldn't actually trust this information, people lost millions of dollars and in some cases their life savings. So auditing is absolutely critical. If we can't trust the numbers and financial statements, then investors and creditors might be less likely to say, okay, I'm going to invest in this company or I'm going to buy this business or I'm going to lend. And if we have investors that don't want to buy shares of stock and they don't want to invest in companies and we have creditors that don't want to lend money to companies because they can't trust the financial information, capital markets aren't going to function.
welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pierre Rochard, joined with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. It's been a while. Yeah. Are you surviving? I, I'm surviving, although my concern right now is less the virus and more of the uh, Noted fans and their pitchforks. Yeah, <laughs> it's really dangerous to uh, piss off the disagreeable mob, you know, it's um, in, in this current day and age. Um, we're joined here with Justin Wales, and uh, he is an attorney at law, Esquire, um, I, I, his lordship. I don't know. what I don't know what the titles are, but uh, um, welcome, Justin. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin podcast. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to bring you on because you wrote, was it a law journal article or a, a, a paper? Yeah, I wrote a, a law review article that um, analyzes the um, First Amendment implications of really specifically Bitcoin, but sort of more broadly, decentralized global networks. Now, when you say First Amendment, are you referring to the um, establishment clause of religion or are you talking about free speech? Yeah, free speech. You know, the First Amendment has five subordinate rights kind of baked into it. So I, I focus the article on expression and association. And then... Uh, because I, it could I, go under religion, too. Let's be clear. <laughs> well, there certainly are a lot of zealots. <laughs> um, do, oh, actually, on that note, um, do, do you have some some commentary on like how the Supreme Court has decided what is a religion and what is not? Like, are there criteria like... Like we have the Howey test for securities. Is there one for religion? Yeah, it has to be. It has to be like a truly held belief. So you you saw, you saw the the test sort of like come about when um, people wanted to get out of the uh, Vietnam War. So they claimed that there was like a Quaker exemption, and um, then there's been a couple others. There's a, a wild case out of Miami from I think it was the early '90s about practicing Santeria and uh, slaughtering chickens. Uh, and whether you can use your belief to get around food safety laws. So there's there's a whole line of case law for, for what is or what is not a religion. If it's just truly held belief, I think we've got this in the bag. <laughs> yeah, this is a slam dunk. Yeah, well, but it has to be tied to some sort of uh, divinity, right? It can't just be something you really believe in. There has to be some godlike element to it. So We happen to have a uh, <laughs> creator myth. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we don't we don't even know who it is. It's a, it's a very mysterious so, entity. I would argue the burden is on the government to identify uh, Satoshi Nakamoto as being a legal person and not a re religious entity. Uh, and good luck to them. I've I've heard a theory that um, you know the creation of Bitcoin proves time travel because uh, basically Satoshi came back created this uh, this technology which would eventually gain sentiency and become Satoshi Nakamoto who would go back in time to create to create a loop of, of the innovation of this project. I had a theory back in like 2014 that what happened was uh, Friedrich, Friedrich Hayek died in like 1994, uh, just as like the web was really taking off. So he his soul merged into the web, the most spontaneous of orders. And then uh, by the time the financial crisis was hitting, uh, he sent his only begotten son, Satoshi Nakamoto, to, uh, you know, wash us of our monetary sins. I feel like we just lost credibility in front of the audience. 
Uh, I feel like we could introduce this as evidence for Bitcoin being a religion. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, I think that the, the religion angle, uh, well, I find it compelling. It might <laughs> not hold up to a lot of scrutiny. But um, the free speech angle, uh, let, I, I'd really love to hear you dig in on that. Um, and first kind of, I guess, clarify, you know, wh when people say like, I, I've heard people make the argument, oh, you know, I've got free speech. And really, they're talking about it from like a philosophical perspective, not from a constitutional law perspective, right? Yeah. Um, and so if we could just clarify, like, what the constitutional law is, kind of where the current state of um, the First Amendment right to free speech is in, 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 in the United States, specifically, I guess, because we have a global audience. But we're going to focus it on the United States, because let's be clear here. The United States, I think, uh, does it have the best free speech in the world, would you argue? It has the first free speech in the world is maybe a better way of. Interesting. Of okay. Um, you know, there, there are trade-offs all over, all over the world. Um, we, we've certainly at least positioned ourselves to have sort of a traditionally liberal take on expression and how that manifests um, you know, sort of ebbs and flows with, with the culture. But um, broadly speaking from a constitutional perspective, you have a lot of rights to express yourself and to associate with the types of people that you want to uh, be a part of their group. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's pretty good when it's applied correctly. Yeah. Something I really liked about uh, your article was uh, you had a great breakdown of many different interpretations of what free speech can even mean. Yeah. Um, which was interesting to me because I've, I've certainly had these thoughts before, you know, where it's kind of like the, the term free speech is kind of used in, in a different context. Uh, but you did a really good job of just like actually um, articulating and, and creating a sort of taxonomy of these, these different perspectives. So could you like go through kind of what those perspectives are? Sure. Yeah. So just to give you maybe a bit of an overview about what the question should be, why do we have a first amendment? Not how does the first amendment apply? And, and, and there's a lot of conflicting theories about why the founders enacted the first amendment. Um, so maybe taking a, a step back and, and, and saying like, well, but where are we right now with how the doctrine is developed? It's a mess. And the reason why it's a mess is because the way we um, sort of develop case law and uh, jurisprudence around constitutional rights is through uh, judicial interpretations going up to the Supreme Court, but it, it conflicts the district courts, the intermediary kind of circuit of court of appeals. They all look at this very short, you know, section of the Bill of Rights and they read into it what really their view of where the limits are of, of expression. So we all sort of agree that as an example, um, the First Amendment protects your right from censorship from the government, but it doesn't protect your right from censorship from corporations. And a lot of times when we talk about, you know, the, the culture war, uh, you know, cancel culture, it's talking about not government stopping you from speaking because it's, it's fairly limited when the government does, you know, formally censure you from, from, from expression. Uh, we saw a bit of that actually with um, the protests and sort of sending the National Guard. But it's, it's, it's rare that there's a blanket form of uh, censorship from the government. Rather, what happens is these monopolistic companies say, we're going to bend some sort of pressure. 
and we're going to deplatform you, we're going to censor you, we're going to fire you for what you say. So I want to bring up something here because I feel strongly about it. Commercial speech. I don't like that they've carved out commercial speech as a separate thing. I'm really happy you said that because I can, well, can I address that? But let me just kind of finish, finish, finish my thought. So the, the question becomes is, is there a point where a private platform gets so um, ubiquitous that effectively they need to enforce First Amendment rights and protections on the people who use that platform? And, um, you know, going back maybe almost 100 years, there's cases when they had company towns where people would live in a town that was owned by a specific company, steel, steel mine or whatever. And um, the Supreme Court said, if you take on all of the expressive activities of the town, even though you're private, you have to recognize some, some rights. So that's really where the question is uh, in terms of, you know, where the bounds of the First Amendment is. At what point does YouTube become such a significant platform that everyone is getting their information from there or Google or Facebook or what have you? that you need to start recognizing First Amendment rights. And, and that's really where I would say like the radical, uh, and I use that maybe not in a negative way, but like sort of like the radical First Amendment fundamentalists are, are starting to, to, to get to. Regarding commercial speech, I agree, it's a mess. Uh, and what you saw happen in 2015, there was a Supreme Court case called Reed versus Town of Gilbert, which suggested that the distinction between commercial and non-commercial speech should actually be, be gone away with. And the reason they got there is actually really from like a constitutional law perspective, really interesting because as you may know, um, there are different levels of protected speech. So for instance, like pornography is protected but it's the lowest level of protected speech. Viewpoint discrimination and political speech is the highest level of protected speech, right? I don't wanna stop you from saying your point of view and any type of law or regulation that I pass that addresses your viewpoint needs to be looked at in the highest scrutiny, strict scrutiny. Uh, so what that means is that if I pass a regulation that says you can't protest abortion one way, but the same act that you, uh, you know, the same position you take on the other side would be allowed, we look at it and we have to have a really, really compelling interest to allow that sort of restriction. Now here's the problem, is that the way the doctrine has um, developed if I need to look at what the words you say are to determine whether there's a First Amendment violation, it's viewpoint discrimination. So what the Supreme Court, they haven't said this explicitly, but they're sort of getting there and some of the lower courts are sort of getting to this point. They're saying, well, if I need to look at whether what you're saying is or is not commercial, then I, I, I have to look at the face of, of, of the content Therefore, it necessarily is viewpoint discriminatory. Therefore, it, it shouldn't pass First Amendment scrutiny unless it's really, really compelling interest, which is very, very hard to, to meet this, this strict scrutiny test. So it, it might be that the commercial, non-commercial um, distinction is, is not, you know, not long for this world. Yeah, that's interesting. That, and you take that even further and you say like, well, does the SEC you know, securities laws are those violating First Amendment rights um, in, in how they're, they're policing, how corporations communicate with their shareholders? Well, I mean, there, there are reasons why you would want to have some regulations, especially when you're dealing with like investment. investment. You just lost our entire audience, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So there, there, 
if you, if you, if you look at like, why do state regulators, why do um, like the SEC, why does the SEC, why do they have these laws? Not the, like, forget the enforcement, but just why were they created in the first place is to, to protect people. So you, 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 you want to have some mechanism where people are not going to be taken advantage of because people will be get taken advantage of. That being said, one of the things that we argue in, in this article is that when you look at the sale of a, you know, a technology, really, you know, think, consider Bitcoin technology. When you look at the sale of a Bitcoin, you need to look more at just the face of what, okay, oh, it's money. And you have to really start to, to think about, well, what is it used for? How is it going to develop? Are you regulating really to protect people from, you know, losing their money from being taken advantage of, or are you just over-regulating a technology such that you're stifling innovation and, and really the market? And, you know, there's, there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. Yeah. So um, I guess it, it, you know, is a digital signature commercial speech, you know, can it be, or is the digital signatures always that right uh, numbers and letters and um, that that's, that's the expression by which you're transferring Bitcoin, but it's also just an expression unto itself, right? Uh, the fact that it's transferring Bitcoin, it's kind of just secondary to the fact that you broadcasted it to the Bitcoin network. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we have strong protections on the dissemination of truthful speech. And when I send a, a Bitcoin, I'm not sending you anything, I'm broadcasting information. So it, 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 it's not completely analogous to sending, you know, a, a bearer instrument, to sending gold, you know, uh, making a transfer of, of physical gold. There, there's something a little different about it. And one of the things that, that um, we argue in, in this paper is we need to take a step back about what Bitcoin and, and, and how we talk about what Bitcoin is, especially when we talk to regulators and courts and we kind of describe where we're going with this with this instrument um, and not only describe it as money because it's something more than money. It's a network. We're only talking about really sort of the Bitcoin network and what we can do with it. And we can get into like what, what that means and, and, and how that, that plays itself out. Um, but if we just focus on the monetary aspects of, of Bitcoin, you end up allowing the government to you know, treat it solely as money and potentially um, hinder a lot of expression and a lot of association. Yeah. One argument that you made in the paper that I, I kind of liked was uh, it was dealing with the idea of uh, people publishing information to the blockchain. Yeah. And um, there's been over the years, uh, many ideas around uh, using that aspect of the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, other coins actually like highly value this type of use of the blockchain, whereas in Bitcoin, it's, as you point out, it's, you know, it's kind of frowned upon because it's, you're just like taking up space on other people's nodes and everything. Yeah. However, you make the case that, you know, as long as you own, uh, you know, some private keys that are associated with uh, some amount of Bitcoins, you do have the capability to publish that information if you're willing to pay for it. So like someone can't like just because it won't be a common usage of the Bitcoin blockchain, someone theoretically, yeah, it's like I'm, transaction fees are a thousand dollars. That's fine. This message is worth a thousand dollars to me to put out to the world, um, in which case 
just the the theoretical idea of being able to publish uh, globally uh, should give Bitcoin uh, some level of uh, uh, speech protection. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, when I first got into to Bitcoin, I, I got into it through the First Amendment side. So I was in I was in law school in, in 2009 through 2012. And all I was interested in was the First Amendment. I wanted to, to, to really focus on constitutional law. And if you were paying attention around that time, um, there was a big kind of kerfuffle in, in the First Amendment community because the Obama administration had put an embargo, basically forced an embargo on donations to WikiLeaks. So if you, if you remember MasterCard, Visa, all of the payment processors basically said, we're not going to allow any more donations to WikiLeaks. So what did WikiLeaks do? WikiLeaks went and said, if you want to donate, donate in Bitcoin. So when, when I first uh, like found out about Bitcoin, I understood it from the censorship sort of resistant currency. And then years later, you had WikiLeaks actually post um, uh, from, from their, you know, they had this like a sort of, you know, it's called a cable, cable uh, mm. uh, documents that they, they actually posted on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then looking back and thinking, okay, I understand one of the innovations. When Satoshi made that first block, he was making this amazing money. But as important and something that we never really talk about is that first block also contained the world's very first immutable message. So I know that that Times of London post is going to be there a thousand years from now. Now, who knows what, who knows, you know, assuming that we have at least two people running sort of the, you know, the network. And to me, that's as an important breakthrough on the money side um, as like the, you know, the printing press, because it allows anyone to publish something that can't be removed. There will always be a record of it. And, and I think in the future, you'll be able to go through the Bitcoin blockchain or however it's, it's posted um, and, and published and really find out, well, what was so important? And, and not only that, like how much in money did someone value that message at the time? So you have things like um, posted on, um, I think it was like Cointelegraph or something. And it was uh, about the Ethereum blockchain, but it was about these um, Chinese activists who found out that a Chinese run uh, pharmaceutical company was handing out tainted um, whooping cough vaccines to children. And they kept writing articles about this and it was being scrubbed by internet censors. So what did they do? They went and for like 47 ETH, 47 cents worth of ETH, published the article onto the blockchain. And that's really, really powerful. Now, I, I, would, I would admit that people within the community get very, some people get very frustrated and upset that you're clogging up, you know, clogging up, um, you know, the, the blocks. Um, and there are other blockchains that are experimenting with ways to use their networks to facilitate this kind of discussion. But we don't know what the Bitcoin blockchain is going to be doing 50 years from now, 100 years from now. There's going to be layers and layers and layers of innovation built upon it, and so we don't know what form this type of publication could um, result in. And and to me, that's 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 really powerful, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this article because I I did um, I before I did the article, I pulled every law review, like serious law review article that had been published about Bitcoin, blockchain. Uh, virtual currencies, every sort of combination of phrases you could think of. 
And I found about 300 articles had been pu published already. And the vast, vast, vast majority were talking about ICOs and whether something is or is not a security. And it was just excruciatingly boring to read. You know, I mean, it's an over, it's an, it's an over sort of analyzed area of the law in, in a lot of ways. And I thought to myself, when me and my friends get together and we talk about Bitcoin, we never talk about the Howey test because it's sort of like, okay, well, we understand if you, if you practice securities law, I do a lot of securities law. You understand what the Howey test is. It's, it's not something that's like the, you know, it's, it's not the Rosetta stone that you have to try to fit, figure out. Um, so we thought, well, what can we actually do that would actually add to the, the literature and do something that like really kind of shows, well, how do I want people to think about Bitcoin? How do I want courts regulators to think about it? And, and this was where, where we, we landed. Yeah. And, and to add on your point and to re reiterate, like, you know, if, <laughs> if it got to the point where fees were really high, that actually does make a message published to the blockchain even more interesting. Because it's one thing if you're publishing a uh, message in, you know, a block space where it doesn't cost anything to put a message in, you know, it's just everyone like it's, it's, uh, you know, blocks aren't full and transactions are very, very cheap. But it's like, if you have to pay a thousand bucks, but you're willing to pay that thousand dollars to get a message out, that, that sends a strong signal. Um, so I, we're, we're experiencing right now as, as a culture, um, what are the results of, of, of speech being free to make, right? So we say free, free speech, you have the right to speak, but there's, there are some negatives to being able to speak uh, without, without you know, any cost. And, and the bad part about it is that there's, there's too much expression, right? Like it's hard to actually find what is valuable or is not valuable to you. It's very hard. And you end up relying mostly on algorithms that are, you know, uh, unclear how, what they prioritize, unclear what they have biases against or, or, or not. So p potentially uh, allows you to, to not only publish something immutably, but because I'm now, I've now divorced sort of the limitations of money and the expression that money allows from the, you know, third-party payment processors that charge a fee, I can now potentially use my Bitcoin or, you know, a Satoshi and say, I value this speech, one Satoshi, and it maybe raises in sort of a Reddit type of social media. Um, I, I've been seeing that there's a couple um, social media platforms on like Bitcoin SV that people are experimenting with, which are sort of interesting, right? Like there's one called Twitch and I think another one called like Pow Wow or Ping Pong or something like that. And, um, it, you just lost the rest of our audience. I know, I know. I, <laughs> well, you know, it's just like, I'm not saying like Bitcoin as, I think if, you, if I have to pick up a fight between Bitcoin as me and Bitcoin, it's like the easiest decision in the world. But like, there's something interesting in my mind about having a Twitter that doesn't allow the board of directors of Twitter to control who has a platform, who doesn't have a platform, what is being seen, what isn't being seen. And when you get to like micropayments and, and, and things like that, you allow for more types of expression. So, you know, I, I want, you know, the Lightning Network and, and all the sort of second and, and third layer solutions on Bitcoin to be more advanced because I want to see these things actually built upon Bitcoin. And I think we, we are going to. I think you could also have uh, just money as a general uh, kind of 
signal against civil attacks, like dealing with civil attacks, such that you know you could have a platform where you you know post money just as sort of a bond to say like I'm not a I'm not a bad actor, so just like keep me out. I'm not I'm not just spamming. Yeah. Um, and be able to to do that, so you can almost have a you know it's just a gatekeeper until you pay them the toll <laughs> and then you're in to have have as much free speech as you want um but it keeps out you know a, a big problem with with twitter is how do you uh how, it's actually i'll put it this way like twitter is actually so much of the fun is the fact that it's completely free you know it's just yeah. like this big free for all and this kind of anarchic following and unfollowing and you you just kind of find strange corners and they, they uh, meet each other. And just like, it's, it's just so chaotic and crazy. And, and that's so much of the fun. Um, but they do have an issue where, you know, uh, people were able to, you know, spin up as many accounts as they want. Uh, yeah. If they act against the terms of service, which we could argue about what those terms of service ought to be, um, you know, they just spin up a new one. Um, and so you have this big sort of civil issue to deal with. And I wonder if, you know, perhaps in the f- future, Bitcoin can just, you know, money can be as like this expression just like, hey, I'm, you know, not, I- I'm, a- I'm a real person. And now you can have, you know, back to, back to the anarchy not that you've uh, proven yourself. Yeah. And, and I think the point is that one of the reasons why the level of discourse has, has potentially um you know, sort of lessened over the last 10 years is because there's one platform for that type of expression. So it might be that you want to have a platform that is completely, you know, uh, it, it's just a, a, an anarchist playground. Everyone has a, has, has a platform. You can go and sift through it however you want. You can allow an algorithm to figure it out for you. Or you might want a level of discourse where you say, okay, I want everyone to pay, you know, you know a couple Satoshis to post their Twitter message, because I know that if they now are posting it, 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 it costs them something, whether, you know, and, and, you know, you don't want to necessarily get to the point where the only people who have a platform are those who will have the most money. That's also. Yeah. Sort of Although thing. at the same time, like if you're only paying like two Satoshis uh, to post a message, that's not interesting to me. I want, I want a Twitter where you have to post a whole Bitcoin to tweet. I want to see what people have to say then. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know you could you could do that. You could pay Twitter eleven thousand dollars and promote your 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 tweet. So it, it maybe already exists. I think Jack will take a a Bitcoin from you. Yeah, what, a lot from me. <laughs> what I find frustrating uh, with the whole Twitter situation is that I feel like um, the there's a lot of overlap between what we would kind of consider of the the common law liberal tradition and what is commercially in their best interests. Yeah. And um, like, even, you know, this podcast, the noted Bitcoin podcast, we've never tweeted out anything controversial. We tweet very little. We just tweet whenever there's an episode, which unfortunately is too little, but they suspended our account. Yeah. And if there was a way of either we just pay to have it back um, or pay to have some kind of appeals process yeah. but in either case have some notion that we have like recoverable property rights over this twitter handle 
And that's in the interests of Twitter. Like, I don't see why that would be against their interests. We didn't do anything wrong. Some automated algorithm somewhere uh, screwed it up and, and, and there's like no recourse seemingly. Yeah, I, I mean, so if you were um, watching the congressional hearings on the antitrust matter a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that, that, that came up was the internal judicial processes that these companies have with regard to sellers. So I think the example that they gave was um, with Amazon. If I'm a seller through, through Amazon, the most important judicial body is the Amazon appeal process of whether or not they will list my, my store. And that's really scary because the way they structure typically the, the contracts, whether it's Amazon or whether it's Twitter and it's your user agreement, is that you really have no right. You really don't have, there might be an appeal, but there's not, it's not an appeal in the same way we think of it in like a judicial sense where you have rights and due process and you have the ability to advocate for yourself. It's just asking them to look at it again and make sure that they didn't make a, a, an easy mistake. But, but even so, I have a friend whose um, Twitter account, uh, she had about 110,000 followers. It was kind of a, a, a blog. Someone sim swapped her, broke in, posted all of these like terrible things in Portuguese onto her Twitter account. Twitter rightfully deleted all of these horrible messages and suspended the account. And it's been about a month and a half and there's just no one for her to talk to. Um, to get it back. And this is like a big part of this woman's livelihood. So, so one of the, um, one of the, the, the places where I think sort of like Bitcoin can maybe lead us is to decentralize away from these, you know, sort of platforms in, in a manner where you actually can control your digital identity. Cause that's the thing that's the scariest. And, and we saw this um, two weeks ago with the Twitter hack is that um, Joe Biden might become president of the United States, you know, and he doesn't control his Twitter account. He doesn't own that Twitter account. Donald Trump doesn't own his Twitter account, you know, name a celebrity. They don't own the, you know, own their Twitter account. So what does that mean? That means that their entire livelihood, their entire platform can be controlled with a click of a button in a, by a company who has kept their system so insecure that a 17 year old was able to figure it out through a Slack, you know, Slack uh, insecurity. So if, if we can get away from that, I, I think, you know, it, it just benefits us all. And I think like looking back in, in time, we'll see this generation as being sort of the experimentation of, okay, well, what happens when we all centralize into these like great internet forums where we can all talk and everyone's connected and what are the bad aspects of it? And how do we then move forward to the next, which I'm, I think is going to be a more decentralized The, you know, when, when like hyper Bitcoinization happens, it's going to have a lot of benefits. And one of them is, is in internet speech, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and in whatever form that takes personally, I think that it's going to take the form of uh, a layer on top of lightning. Uh, yeah. But um, obviously that's, uh, that's going to be for the market to decide. Um, yeah. And I, I liked your, um, I mean, I always liked this concept of, of the marketplace of ideas and, uh, wh what do you think would be how it would shake out with the Brad Shermans of the world who are like, hey, look, the U.S. dollar is a key part of the of our national defense, right? That we have the ability to have the global reserve currency that's 
uh, you know, has all these implications, but also they allow us to sanction uh, foreign countries or specific individuals that also allow us to, frankly, enforce the tax code, right? Like how, how, how easy would it be for the IRS if um, banks did not have to provide data to the IRS and that, you know, they, they, they had to actually, uh, that you could plead the fifth with your bank account, which you cannot do today, right? Like if you try to plead the fifth with the bank account, they'll yeah. just subpoena the bank and they'll get the data. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of insecurities that occur on the tax side and loopholes that are exploited on the tax side with the US dollar already. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't know if you're, you know, completely buying, if you, if you go completely into like a Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is the, the, the US and global currency. I don't know if you're trading everything in for a completely new set of problems. I think some of the problems are, are already there, but ultimately it's on the, look, if the, if the US government believes that it can only enforce its tax code through US fiat dollars, then it has one of two choices. Either one, make the US dollar more stable and have people not looking for different assets. I mean, if the US dollar wasn't just being printed, you know, without regard for what it's doing to the inflation rates, people wouldn't be looking at gold and Bitcoin as much right now. So there's that, they can make the monetary policy better or they can just try to make Bitcoin illegal and, and say, you have to use this US dollar and if you don't, you're a criminal. And then you have all sorts of other problems and you create a lot of criminals. And one of the things that I, I try to argue in, in the paper and, and also through, throughout my practice is that in order to protect against that second um, circumstance, you need to like think of Bitcoin a little differently and think of it as a network that could have different layers, different expressive uh, uh, qualities, and also like look at it as an association of people who are actually rebelling or advocating against a monetary policy that isn't tied to anything but the whims of a government. And, and once you get to that point, then you have the protection that you need in case the the, the government says we want to ban this completely, or it doesn't even have to get to the point of banning it completely, just treating it either completely like a money so that I can't send Bitcoin to you um, or, or sell you Bitcoin without getting a license and getting your name and information and not allowing you to transact in, um, you know, uh, in, in sort of an anonymous off the radar way. Or just um, if I'm running the, deciding the electric rates, in Washington state, and I say, well, you're mining for Bitcoin, I'm going to charge you a higher rate than I charge the other data farm across the street who's not mining for Bitcoin. When you look at sort of the, the overall picture of what Bitcoin is and how it's been structured and how it's developed over 10 years, you find that those types of distinctions become really harder, much harder when, when you start to treat this as an expressive and associational network of information that just happens to have this like secondary value because it has these great monetary policy um, properties built in. So it, it seems like if this is kind of the approach that would avoid Bitcoin having gold's fate of that, that physicality of gold is what allowed 
executive order 6102, you know, seizing all the gold and making gold trading illegal in the US. That if we can convert that into saying, well, because Bitcoin is not a physical object, it's just information, it's just speech. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the protections on it are much greater than what we had for gold. Well, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like this is a foolproof argument, you know, because like, there are a lot of things where we say, well, okay, well, a lot of things are just information, but they're tied to some larger system and, and you can, you can have regulations on them. What, what I'm saying is that if you look at uh, sort of the banning of gold is a good example, right? In 19, I think it was 33, it was an executive order. They said, you are not allowed, people say you're not, you were banning gold. You're not allowed to hold gold, but that's not what it said. It said, you're not allowed to hold gold bullion or coin, Right. They weren't seizing lockets from people's necks. You know, th- there was still gold around. And what I'm suggesting is that if you only look at Bitcoin as a currency, because we call it a coin or we say it's a cryptocurrency and we say it's a digital dollar, you know, it's like a virtual dollar, or e-cash or whatever, you don't have a real appreciation of, of what it is and where it can go. So it might be, and, and this is something, you know, something that I, I think is pretty reasonable, that I can regulate you as a money transmitter when you were acting like a money transmitter. But I can't say that any sale of Bitcoin is necessarily, should necessarily be treated like the sale of money because I might buy that Bitcoin from you because I want to go and post a religious or political message because I want to go and I want to join the Lightning Network and I want to be able to send a fraction of a penny to someone in Beirut without having to go as a show of just non-financial support just to say i'm with you we are all part of one world or whatever and if you only look at the monetary aspects of it you miss out on those expressive qualities and the expressive characteristics of what this thing could could be um you know if if the government said all all gold was banned was banned um people would freak out i mean you'd be taking wedding rings you'd be ripping out you know gold from from semiconductors and things like that i i think eventually it might be the same thing you might use Bitcoin as a, as a, a financial transaction uh, for financial tra- transaction, but you also might use it for expressive purposes or just to hold on to it because you believe in the overall message of Bitcoin. And that's the other thing that, that we talk about in the paper quite a bit, which is the associational protections. So you can get to protected by the First Amendment one of two ways. You can say Bitcoin allows you to express yourself. It allows you to build different platforms on top of it, publish things immutably, what have you. But also... Someone who runs uh, a full node, someone who um, is mining, they are participating in a network in order to, you know, uh, keep up the integrity of the blockchain. Um, and that has associational rights. And there was a case. Um, Peckingham versus North Carolina, in which they expressly stated that your ability to associate and express yourself on internet networks, I think is the term that they used, is protected under the First Amendment. So it's not a lot of steps further until you get to, okay, you have to treat people who run, who are, are mining the same way as anyone using electricity. You have to treat people who are running um, full nodes in the same way as anyone who's running kind of a, you know, a, a network at their house or, or a database or anything. Yeah, this is something that's it's been brought up of uh, the the electricity police, right? Yeah. Of are, are we going to go around and be like, hey, you cannot have Christmas lights that consumes too much electricity, but 
you know, you can have this other thing. And it's like, and I, I get this thing with, with water too, of like, oh, you know, you're not allowed to water your lawn, but you can take a two hour shower. It's like, well, why don't you just charge me how much the water costs <laughs> yeah. and base that price on <laughs> if the If only we had a, a universal system for <laughs> transmitting information about value and scarcity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's two ways of looking at it. The first is there's always a what about, you know, sort of response to any sort of regulation. And as, as a government, you just can't, you can't say we're not going to regulate anything until we can regulate everything because that's not good for, for freedom. I mean, that's not something that you actually want the government to take that position. So um, you just need to justify it, right? Like there, there might be a reason why certain activity puts such a strain on the infrastructure that you want to treat it differently. And from a first amendment perspective, there's a, there's a way for them to do it. You say, okay, here's a compelling interest. Here's why I can't restrict this type of um, result with less intrusive methods. And you make that argument. But what you can't do is you can't just say, I don't think, well, you're mining for Bitcoin, therefore of electricity for some other method is okay. You have to just make a, a justification. And, and um, you know, like one of the things that, that we do at, at, at the firm is we um, were the authors of this uh, treatise on state regulations of Bitcoin and we call it uh, of blockchain and virtual currencies, right? Sort of a generic name. And we've been publishing it for, I think the last four, four years. And we go through every single regulation that the states have adopted or considered and just sort of have a repository. These are, this is everything that is being considered. And it's wild how different different states treat this type of technology, how some are very, very permissive, how some are overly restrictive, how some pass regulations just to say that they passed regulations. I've, I've, I've heard from people on these committees who said, you know, the, the, the chairperson's grandson was into Bitcoin. So therefore he wanted to add the word Bitcoin to like, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, a regulation on like unclaimed property. And what you end up having is like a, a, a regime where if you, Pierre, wanted to start a business that dealt with Bitcoin, even in a, a sort of innocuous way, you're forced to hire someone like me at like a high hourly rate to tell you whether that's okay or not. And in some cases, for not necessarily a good policy reason, you're forced to collect the information about your customers. You're forced to submit to, um, you know, uh, a licensure scheme. You're forced to hire um, an on-site compliance officer. All of this adds money and money and money. And you end up creating a system not where these types of businesses don't get created. They only get created by the people who already have the most clout. So if you look at, for instance, the bit license is usually one of the most talked about in New York, right? New York came in and said, we're going to create a virtual licensing scheme called the bit license. It's, it, I think has like a, like from the regulator's perspective, it's trying to prevent people from being defrauded. Okay, fine. So you create it, but there's such a backlog that it could take over a year to, to actually get one approved. It could take 50, $100,000 in legal fees to set up the infrastructure needed. 
So what the bit license, the Department of Financial Services did uh, maybe a month or two ago is they said, we're going to amend it slightly. So we're going to allow people to operate um, under another licensed entity's license while their application is being handled. And you think, well, that's great. You know, this is a wonderful, wonderful result. But the result actually is that in order for me to now operate in New York while I'm waiting for my own license, which is going to take is I now have to have a partnership with one of these big entities that are already licensed. So it just makes the playing field smaller and smaller and smaller. And some, some people say that's, that's by design. I mean, it, as, as this, you know, sort of virtual economy starts to, to grow, the people who are already involved in it and who are already successful and see the path to like extreme profitability want to say, well, this is mine. And that's a problem with Bitcoin from top to down, which is we all found it early. So we want to say, this is mine. I'm special. You all doubted me. But the way to really make this take off is to say, no, no, no. Let's have as many people involved in this as, as possible because this is good for so many different areas of our lives. Right. It's like metastasizing uh, rent seeking. Yeah. Yeah. My, my biggest frustration with kind of uh, like a, at a philosophical level is fraud is already illegal. So if like, are we really, you know, if, if we're trying to punish fraud before it happens, it's like pre-crime. It's not, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make sense to me in, in, in an open society. Well, look, there, there are preventative measures that you would want, you would you would want um, people in charge of, of for instance, in taking custody of your crypto to, to take, right? You would want, I, I mean, at least for me, if I'm giving my, my Bitcoin to someone to hold and I say to myself, well, I don't care about that aspect of. But, the, of but that's already all, that's all part of the common law, right? Like all we're, no, all I mean, they're doing is adding layers on top of that. Like there's already conceptual like things like bailment or um... yeah yeah. i mean i mean i think that's that's absolutely true um you might need to add some definitional terms right to make it explicit but oftentimes when we talk to regulators um the first thing we we try to convince them is you don't need to regulate you the, the best thing you could do is nothing because typically what you do in terms of like crafting policy is you address behavior right? I don't want you to money launder. I don't want you to defraud people. I don't want you to steal. So you make money laundering and fraud and theft crimes. What the instinct of a lot of the states um, has been for the last, really, I'd say five years, is we need to have a Bitcoin law. We need to have a blockchain law. We need to have a task force. And really what they're doing is they're just overcomplicating regulation that already exists. Um, there, there are reasons why you want to do that. In Florida, for instance, they had a situation, um, it was called the Espinoza case, where a guy was basically using local, local Bitcoin to um, allegedly launder money. And what he argued is that it's not money, because in the money laundering statute, you, uh, it doesn't say Bitcoin. So the court agreed with him, and then it ended up sort of reversing it on appeal, but in the interim, the state legislature quickly went in and said, no, 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 we're going to add virtual currencies. 
when you start talking about what is or is not a blockchain, you start saying this sort of currency versus that, it gets super complicated. I'm on like an email list and the state of California, I'm not in LA, has, um, has a blockchain task force. And, and this morning I read through, it was like a 120 page report put out by the blockchain task force. And the very first thing was, we want to have a definition of what a blockchain is. And it's like, well, all right. I mean, you can do that. But I'm a definition of what pornography is, right? What's the Peter hotline that's like, uh, blockchain is a chain of blocks. Right. <laughs> I, I, my, favorite, my favorite way of describing it to people is, I think John Oliver said, it's everything you don't understand about the internet mixed with everything you don't understand about money, which I think is a pretty, <laughs> pretty good way of putting it. But the problem is that if you tell me as a client, I need to make sure that this is not a blockchain, I'm smart enough to say, call it a tangle and we can fight about it in, in, in the future, right? And, and that's not a way you want people to think about the regulations that they are, are um, you know, they're regulated by. So this is something hopefully the, you know, the, the states and, and the federal government and, and local municipalities that are even trying to sometimes regulate these things start to start to understand that this is, this is broader than you think it is. And, and I always tell people like, think of it like you were trying to regulate the internet and behavior on the internet in like 1992. Well, in 1992, you would, I would say, you would say, well, what do you, what is the internet good for? Well, you can send some, some email, maybe there's a message board, but imagine trying to craft regulation for it. And it addressing anything we do on the internet now, it's impossible because our whole life is the internet. And if you really look at Bitcoin as something that you can build layer upon layer upon layer on, um, it becomes really hard to regulate it in, in such a myopic way. So you, you mentioned that like, um, you know, making it so that it's clear that these networks are not just about monetary applications that uh, there are other applications for it, you know, the, the timestamping uh, part of it. Now, I, I want to add maybe another argument here of maybe it would benefit us, benefit the First Amendment argument a lot if we got a lot of campaigns, political campaigns, accepting crypto, accepting Bitcoin. Sorry, I say crypto now because I've, I've been working at Kraken too long. Uh, Bitcoin. Um, and critics citizen, were right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're vindicated. Uh, Citizens United versus FEC. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned it in, in the article. And I, 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 I find it amusing because like I always hear people autistically screeching about how, oh, this is terrible that, you know, there's free speech for money. What are we talking about? Um, but yeah, the, and, and we've had political campaigns accept Bitcoin. And we've had the FEC put out guidance that that's okay, but I'm wondering if you've got some commentary on that. Yeah, I mean, so uh, Citizens United is an example of, and this is something that's very common in Supreme Court precedent, is that the first case they address in a line of cases has as tiny of a sort of a nugget of logic that everyone can under agree with. And then you take that, and over the course of decades or sometimes, you know, you know, half a century, you expand it to the point where people say, well, is this really the, I understand where the, the line sort of, of logic comes from and how you got there, but is this the result? So let, let me explain that. The idea that 
that money is speech is sort of icky to a lot of people because, well, we don't want the Koch brothers, you know, spending, you know, a billion dollars on, on elections. I don't like that these political action committees have so much, so much, um, you know, sort of sway in Washington. But you go back 40, 40 something years and you started to see Supreme Court cases um, which talked about the, the right to donate money. And really what they said was money, money equals speech comes from the idea that sometimes when I spend money, even if it's significant money, it's not really a financial transaction. So for instance, if, I'm, if, if, if Pierre has a, um, uh, a nonprofit and I want to donate to that nonprofit, you know, $100,000. It's not necessarily because it's like a transaction like me buying a, a, a gallon of milk. It's saying that I believe in what you're saying philosophically. And I want to use my resources to help amplify that position. Because I think that position is ultimately better for our democracy. So when you sort of look at it like that, it's like, okay, yeah, money is speech. Because money allows you to express a point of view um, more fully. Um, you also saw this same type of argument in some of the newspaper cases. So another subordinate right of the First Amendment is that um, news gathering is protected. So when you had the clear distinction, this is kind of lessened in years, of commercial versus non-commercial speech, you have a situation like a newspaper that has ad revenue in it. So if I'm a newspaper and I need to sell ads in order to fund the editorial side, is a newspaper commercial by virtue of having ads. And what the courts have said is no, the ads themselves are commercial, meaning they can be regulated in that I can force a tobacco, you know, sort of a tobacco ad to have a Surgeon General warning on it. But you can't say that the, 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 the paper itself is, is commercial. So that has sort of been extrapolated over the course of 30 years to Citizens United, which basically said, if I'm giving money through a pack, not individually, because that we don't want that sort of influence. But if I'm giving money through a pack, then you can't, how could you possibly put a limit on that? That's just your ability to express yourself. There are problems with sort of like where we have gotten to on, on that end, but that's, that's how we got there. I don't think that um, Bitcoin being taken by politicians will um, necessarily change how politicians view it because they're basically looking at it as property. If you look at any, any FEC disclosure, it'll say cash contributions and in-kind contributions. They're just looking at it like you donated like a, you know, lawn signs or a car or something to a, a political candidate. Um, so I don't know if that really gets you anywhere, but that's how we got to the idea that money could be something a little more than, than just, you know. But if we, if we imprint it that um, Bitcoin is a way for people to contribute to a politician, to contribute, to, to express political speech in a way that cannot be controlled by third parties, that it puts it in a unique category of something that has to be protected for that reason alone. Maybe. It, it gets, comp I think it would get really complicated in application because the way our donation, political donation system is set up is that you want to make sure you know where the money is coming from, right? So there would have to be disclosures. You would de-anonymize 
anyone who's donating. So I'm not sure exactly how they'll, they'll circle that, that square, but I think there are enough, um, enough arguments on the expression and association side that we don't necessarily need that, that extra one, although it's, it's compelling. And I think, uh, you know, if, uh, if Satoshi came, came back and said, I want to have a Satoshi pack and I want to donate, you know, $10 billion to, uh, you know, whichever can, you know, Kanye West and Kanye West becomes president, I think you'll find uh, Bitcoin is very protected under, under his, his administrations. It, it's probably, that's, that's probably the simplest way of putting. Yeah, fair, fair. Um, yeah, so, okay, you mentioned that, um, why is it that individual contributions mm. don't have this protection? Well, the I. The idea is that you don't want a politician individually beholden to a person. Except right. themselves, right? In the case of Michael Bloomberg, where he can put in oh, as much yeah. money as he wants, which yeah. is, it's incoherent, right? It's a contradiction. Being successful, right? This is, this is like the, the hypocrisy of, of, of national elections, really. Um, so, so that's the idea. There was a case a couple of years ago um, about whether you can place limits on my ability to bundle for other people. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't really place limits on that either. So why they chose the line at whatever it is, $2,400 per campaign cycle per, um, per candidate. I, oh, uh, that, that was what the Supreme Court case was. It was, is there an individual limit to, to my um, spending money in that can I just max out my contributions to every person in the Democratic or Republican Party? And yeah, that's fine. You can you can do that for, for the real way to, ch to change that is you have publicly financed elections, um, which is an option. I mean, I, when you when you um, get your driver's license, you probably have to check a, a you have to check a, a box that says whether you want to donate like $2 to like a public finance fund. The problem is, is that the number is so insignificant in comparison to the amount of money you can raise through like the typical donation process that no viable candidate is going to be able to, to actually choose that. How, how long has it been? 2,400? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. I was just imagining like, you know, <laughs> if they set that, let's imagine they set that in 1971 <laughs> or something and then you know by now because of inflation yeah that doesn't even mean anything anymore so they they not only have have they put a limit but they've uh decreased that limit over time because you know another arm of the state has been diluting our our wealth i um i had a friend who was running for like a local public office a couple years ago and it was a race that didn't really require a lot of money. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to give him Bitcoin. I was like, let me give you Bitcoin. I'll set you up with like a wallet. I'll show you how to do it. And this was during, this was during that like 2017, like insanity. And his response was, it's so complicated for me to deal with the, the price and like the regulations. If it increases, can you just write me a check? So I was like, yeah, sure, all right, fine. But like, there's a lot of infrastructure sort of that's, that's needed and, and sort of um, 
a better infrastructure is set up against politicians who would be for a deflationary currency. This is uh... (laughs) maybe, I mean, maybe I, I don't, I don't think that, I think we sometimes overestimate in the industry and in the community, how much time politicians have really spent thinking about these types of issues. Oh, of course, of course. Like um, most times when I'm talking to regulators, even people who are in like, you know, the financial service regulation, their understanding about cryptocurrencies is Bitcoin, the Dow and ICOs. (laughs) And now DeFi, now everyone's calling about, well, what's DeFi? What what should I know about this, right? Because they're seeing a couple articles pop up here and there, but no one's really talking about No one's really talking about like RSK. No one's really talking about Ethereum 2.0. Like all of these things that like we spend a lot of time talking about and, and fighting. I guess not people don't really spend too much time talking about RSK anymore. But like things that like we have like spent a lot of time thinking about, it's not on their radars. And if you look at how these blockchain groups typically that are set up by the state are populated, the people who are placed on them are typically political appointees. They don't have any real standing in the industry or sort of technical understanding. There are a lot of like credit and bank people and they know about it from like, okay, I know Bitcoin. So what do I know about Bitcoin? I know Anonymous, Silk Road, Mt. Gox. There was a a big crash in 2018. And now there's a, a, a lot of interest again. That's all I know about Bitcoin. And then they're asked, we're asking them to, to regulate us. So for like the lawyers who are listening and, and I talk a lot to people who are in law school or just starting out the career, I say there's like a, an amazing opportunity to like advocate for the technology in a way that is dissimilar to how a lot of folks in, in the legal side of the industry are advocating. Because what you'll see if you like really look through who the lawyers are, um, they're people who had securities or commodities backgrounds for a long time and then they learn just enough about bitcoin to now say okay now i now i I, i'm a bitcoin lawyer or something like that but when you only look at it from a securities perspective or a payments perspective or a commodities perspective you miss out on all of these non-obvious arguments and understanding of well what are we actually talking about we're talking about a network that connects people without anyone telling us that we can connect. And we're building systems upon that. And the first and best system that we're able to build is money, but it's gonna be other things. If I, if I could just maybe say one other point that I, I always think about is when we say deflationary aspect, uh, asset, we talk about this as if to say, there's, there are not going to be printing more of Bitcoin. And that's true. But I, I look at it, the reason why it's deflationary is because there will always be less Bitcoin right? You're always seeing people die without, you know, leaving any instructions for where their keys are. If I want to just burn some amount of Bitcoin uh, in order to like put something onto the blockchain, if I want to enter into some sort of counterparty thing where it's just a proof of burn or proof of existence, that Bitcoin is gone forever. So if that's the case, it's not really a money. It's, It's a commodity and it's a resource. And that resource is going to be used for more and more things as the industry develops, we just saw, I think on June 10th, Microsoft launched on the main. Sorry, 
someone's calling. Uh, Microsoft launched on like the mainnet, ma- mainnet, um, a decentralized identification platform built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. It tells you something about where we're going with this network. And mm-hmm. it's much further than, than money, in, in my opinion. I'm sure like safety would like tell me I'm wrong, but <laughs> the perspective. So, okay, so we're, we're talking about um, speeches uh, or money as speech and, and kind of that metaphor. I want to get to the Second Amendment, okay, <laughs> which is relevant <laughs> because, hey. because they have made encryption into a weapon in the past, right? Um, yeah. and, and they've made that argument before that it's a matter of national security that, you know, hard crypto not leave the U.S. and there's an export ban on it, et cetera. Um, is there an argument for uh, Bitcoin being a firearm or uh, the you know an arm <laughs> that one could bear? Well, so there's um, a case called I think it's called Bernstein from I want to say it's the Ninth Circuit. I cite it I cite it in um, the article, and the the facts of the case is it was a PhD student who wrote out a program that would get around some sort of decryption process. So he wrote a thesis um, and then wrote out the program and the government wanted him to basically register as that program being um, an arm, right? He had to register under his national arm, armory something. Um, I forget what it's called, it's been a while since I read the case. And one of the things that he argued is that this is expression. This is sort of like one of the early like code is speech type of cases. One of the arguments the lawyers made is if I just printed out the code and sent it, it would not be considered an an arm under federal guidelines. But the fact that it's code, it is. And if I can get around that sort of restriction so easily, it's not a restriction that can stand up to constitutional scrutiny. There was a couple of other cases involving like de-encryption software of like DVDs. And what some of the courts said was, well, if the, if the code is, um, uh, is, is uh, what was the word they used? It was like active, if the code was active, in that um, you could easily implement it, then you might be able to regulate it a little more. So there's some line when something becomes, you know, a, a speech becomes so, uh, a piece of code becomes so active that it is something other than just pure code. Where that line is, people aren't exactly sure, but the cases that are probably going to get us there are these like 3D printed gun cases, right? Because Sure, these are schematics, but the schematics can only be used for this one purpose, which is to print a firearm around different types of regulations. It's different when you think of something like Bitcoin, if you can use Bitcoin for all these other things. And this is sort of like all tying it back to how how purposeful it is. Um, An example I give in um, the paper is a QR code, right? A QR code is pure speech. I can make a picture out of that QR code. I could spray paint it onto a wall. I've seen people put, you know, an address on a a canvas and sell that that canvas, fine. 
but is the act of actually printing that QR code, can that be regulated? Well, probably not. What might be able to be regulated is if you say, you know that this is, you know, ISIS's, you know, you know, uh, public address, and you're going to send them something in furtherance of terroristic activities. But in that case, we already have laws to prevent that. Do you need to create new regulations just because I can now transmit money via this, you know, sort of image rather than a wire transfer or a sack of, of dollars? Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the Second Amendment has been in many ways co-opted by the, the Second Amendment advocates have in many ways co-opted the First Amendment in the same way that like corporate interests have co-opted the First Amendment. So now everything you do in terms of uh, your economic output or whether you even think about guns is now they argue that this is a First Amendment right uh, violation. There was an example of this. Um, it was a case called Walschlager, where the state of Florida passed a law on the behalf of the NRA that said that doctors were not allowed to talk to their patients about gun ownership. So what, what doctors would do is you'd have a baby, you'd be pregnant, and they'd be like, here are the things you should do to keep a safe house. Um, lock up the ammonia, put a fence around the pool. If you have a firearm, put it high up so the kid doesn't get it. And the NRA viewed that as um, contradictory to Second Amendment rights because the evidence showed that a lot of people give up their guns when they have a kid because they don't want the kid to get hurt. There's like actually statistics about this. So it was highly effective true speech that they were trying to, that they were trying to um, hide um, by saying that it interfered with the patient's Second Amendment right uh, because it might dissuade them from exercising it. And it was a big sort of back and forth among the 11th Circuit. I was involved in the case, actually. Um, and ultimately, the, the, the 11th Circuit, in an en banc opinion, said, no, you can't tell doctors they can't give true information to their patients. It doesn't implicate, not everything, not everything the Second Amendment folks want to do also implicates the First Amendment right. So we're seeing a bit of a pushback between the two amendments because yeah and honestly like i i i'm a strong second amendment guy and i had the opposite reaction when i had a kid i started buying more guns not fewer but um the um the nra specifically is a clown show like and that's what just came out of this new york attorney general that was like look these guys are grifters like they're just robbing people blind well there's there's a really wonderful book called The Cult of the Constitution, and it's by um, a scholar named Marianne Franks, and it's divided into three sections. The first is about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the Communications Decency Act, which is, you know, what gives immunity to big tech for anything that's published on, on their platform. And what she argues quite effectively is that the ACLU the um, NRA and the Electronic Freedom Foundation utilize the exact same sort of methodology of creating like a fundamentalist um, sort of position around the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the CDA, which is if you try to, if you try to say that anything is banned under the First Amendment, a lot of the folks in the ACLU say, no, we have to have this. It's a marketplace of ideas. You can't ever censor. The Second Amendment people will say, 
you can't ever have any regulations on guns. This is, you know, obviously what the Second Amendment is here to protect. And the Electronic Freedom Foundation will say, you need to give as broad of immunity as possible to activities that happen on the internet. And if you don't do any, uh, if you don't take this fundamentals approach, you're going to find um, that the rights just disintegrate, they disappear. And she, she points out a lot of the sort of hypocrisies, especially in the NRA, of how, how these, come, how these uh, entities have grown and have, you know, really advocated on behalf of a very narrow sliver of like the most well-off economic sort of uh, drivers in, in the country. So it, it's, it's an interesting, very radical book. Well, even being like, um, you know, uh, protecting gun manufacturers from any liability. Like yeah. that as a libertarian, I'm opposed to, like, I love tort law. I think, in fact, I don't think criminal law should exist. I think everything should just be a tort and it should all just be uh, liabilities. But um, they, these these people are not, um, they're not, they're, they're kind of just representing the gun lobby, like the gun industry itself, like the... And, uh, and this, yeah. is, this is the criticism for a lot of modern day libertarianism, which is it's selective, right? Like you can't really say you are in support of a market, like a free market, when you are also in support of all of these um, sort of uh, protectionistic regulations. So you can either be one or the other if you want to be fundamentalist, or you can take what most people I think is a middle approach, which is, okay, I want the government to make sure that there isn't cyanide in the water supply. But there is, you know, there's a limit to how much oversight I, I, I want. Um, I have a friend who he has, it's one of the best lines I've, I've, I've ever heard. He says, I want all drugs to be illegal for except for me and my friends. Right. And I think that's the approach a lot of people take on a lot of different issues. And, and that that just creates a lot of regulatory chaos once it makes its way up to, to the halls of Congress. And, and then on the opposite side of the spectrum, the one I found to be a real doozy this year was uh, I heard someone say, well, lighting a federal courthouse on fire in Portland is expressive speech. So it should be protected by the First Amendment. I, like, well, I, I don't think there is a doubt that it expresses something, right? So like there, there's a difference. <laughs> whether something is or isn't expressive and whether something is or isn't protected, right? So ex- expression as just a, a, a definitional term is, are you understanding the meaning of what I am trying to convey by this action, right? So if I give you the finger, you understand what I'm saying. If I have a, uh, if I have a, a, a patch on my back that says, fuck the draft, you understand what I'm saying. If I'm dancing, you're understanding that's expressive, even though I'm not saying anything. That being said, it's not protected by the First Amendment because, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it causes all these other harms. So there's a level of violence that is still immune from First Amendment protection, even though it might, it might express something. So, yeah, it's expressive, but you're going to jail. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what happens if you have expression, um, but it's rather... Um... I don't know, like esoteric expression in the sense of like you make jokes that have so many levels of irony that it's like it doesn't even come across to other people as having like the joke doesn't get across, even though it is hidden in there. And maybe like one other person gets it. Okay, so I mean, I I feel like um, this is actually a great question. There's two answers to that. The first is like uh, kind of taking us back to the conversation about Bitcoin. Right. And what is or is not speech in relationship to 
computer programming or, or, or um, a digital transaction. There was, um, there, there was an argument in the Bernstein case that code is not speech because an average person wouldn't be able to understand it. It's just numbers and, and letters and it's so esoteric. No one's like, the average person you hand them code, they're not gonna know what it means. And what the court said is, that's not how we judge whether something is or is not expressive. And they use the example of sheet music. If I, write a, if I write a song and I express it in musical notation, most people aren't going to be able to look at that and hear the song in their head, but some people are. So you don't just say, just because something isn't obvious on its face, that it isn't expressive. And um, kind of going back to your earlier question um, about what are the things we're trying to protect in the First Amendment, we're trying to express artistic expression as well, right? I'm, I should be able to say something to you in a non-obvious way. Um, I have a section in there about the political speech doctrine, which is this um, doctrine of First Amendment jurisprudence that is no longer accepted at all. But what it basically said was the only protection that we should have is protection that directly relates to a political expression. The reason why it's never been adopted, even though it's had some like sort of, you know, famous um, professorial uh, advocates, including Robert Bork, who was almost on the Supreme Court, is that it's very hard to tell when something is or is not political. So the example is I, I use is the movie Get Out. Uh, have you seen it with like um, mm -hmm. George yeah. or Clockwork Orange is another example or Dr. Strangelove is another example I use. All of these are entertainment. You can watch them on a very surface level and just think it's a horror movie or a comedy or sort of a, a psychological uh, you know, uh, uh, horror story. Um, but if you are watching them at a certain time in a certain place in the world, you understand the context and the subtext. And it's that I'm actually talking about race relations or I'm actually talking about nuclear disarmament or I'm actually talking about you know, sort of a state control of, of uh, bad behavior. It's very hard to tell when something is or isn't political. So taking that all the way forward, there was a case a couple of years ago in the US Supreme Court in which um, a guy quoting this um, comedy sketch uh, by the, it's a group called the Whitest Kids You Know. I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember them. They had a sketch that said, it's illegal for me to tell you that I wanna assassinate the president, but it's not illegal for me to tell you that it's illegal for me to tell you that I wanna assassinate the president. So he took that basic sketch and he inserted the name of his now ex-wife, recently, you know, sort of separate, strange wife. And he says, it's illegal for me to tell you that I want to kill my wife or that I'm going to kill my wife, but it's not illegal for me to tell you that I'm going to tell that I'm going to kill my wife, whatever. And it got all the way to the Supreme Court because he was arrested. And he argued, well, no, I didn't really mean it. It was a joke. And what the Supreme Court said is, in terms of terroristic threats, you have to take an objective view of it and whether your wife actually could reasonably believe that she was being threatened. And in this case, it was reasonable for her to believe that she was being threatened and therefore the prosecution can, can, can stand. So there there's, it's not always subjective when, even when you're doing something artistic. I, Art I find the, yeah. the reasonable belief angle to be uh, recalculous because specifically because when someone has a Nazi flag up, right? Like, why would it, like, to me, that's a reasonable belief that they're going to try to kill me, right? Like, there's <laughs> there's a long history 
of like I'm French. Yeah, you know they that's their thing. Like they they try to kill the French. So um, I feel like um, and and I have the same view on money laundering. Like the underlying act has to be what's illegal. The actual violence or the actual crime in which the money was involved rather than the ancillary activities around it of the speech or of the transfers. And, you know, one of the the things that's very interesting about how the First Amendment develops is it tends to develop through extreme circumstances, right? So the types of cases that end up before the Supreme Court are at the, the far end of the spectrum and and they're trying to make, they say that they're trying to only decide the case that's in front of them, but really they're trying to set out principles in which we can then figure out what's, what's in, the, in the margins. So an example is, um, this wasn't a Supreme Court case, but I think it court. they had Nazis wanting to, to march through Skokie, Illinois. Mm-hmm. This is like a famous case, a Jewish ACLU lawyer defended like it. 1974. It yeah, exactly. Right. People hold it up as like an example of like, you know, this Voltarian sort of belief. I hate what you say, but I love that you can say it. Um, well, there's a lot of reasons why you would say, well, in application, you don't necessarily want Nazis to be protesting outside the home of, of Holocaust survivors. And then you look at another line of cases, which are burning crosses, well, burning crosses has has a different sort of um, constitutional analysis for 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 some reason. Uh, holding up a sign outside of a, a soldier's um, funeral that says "Thank God for dead soldiers" has is protected. So what ends up happening is the Supreme Court, whatever the makeup is, you have five people, and they say, "Okay, well, you know, this is a pro- this is one of the problems with with how we we set up where the lines are on our, our constitutional rights is." you have five people and you say, okay, you decide. And sometimes you have decisions that seem to be on opposite ends of the, of the, of the, the line for not necessarily a good reason. And then you have these doctrines that are created and lines of cases that can be read as some, sometimes contradictory. One of the reasons why it's so difficult, I think, for the U.S. government to enforce antitrust laws is because the antitrust doctrines are so convoluted in how they've developed because they they're really one-off cases that have developed into theories of antitrust law that you're now trying to you know shoehorn into the next one-off case so there's no there's never been a situation for instance like amazon so when you look at like how typically antitrust law develops, the analysis is really, is the consumer worse off or better off? Is the consumer worse off because of the monopoly? Well, we have a really narrow view sometimes about what better or worse off means. We think it means, can you buy things cheaper? Well, obviously you can buy things really cheaply because of the, anti, because of the Amazon monopoly. But is that really the best interest of the consumer and the broader economy? And this is all a result of like 1990s thinking about trade law that we're now just starting to deal with the repercussions of. God forbid we should just trust the free market to work it out. <laughs> and, and, you know, Amazon, you know, we talked about Amazon earlier with um, the, the speech angle and, uh, you know, their, 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 uh, 
their due process with the stores. I was looking for something very simple, deodorant. So I'm like, all right, I'll just search deodorant on Amazon. I click on the first result. It's got four and a half stars with like 5,000 reviews. But I always scroll down to the actual reviews because yeah. the actual reviews, they will have like the most recent reviews, but also like that have been upvoted. And it's a bunch of one stars. And people are saying, don't buy this because they will ship you a fake knockoff version of this deodorant. And it's, it's like degree men's deodorant. I'm like, what is going on? And why are the reviewers doing a better job of vetting the product than Amazon is like, what is going on? It was, it was, I, and then I was like, you know what? I just need to go to like the actual manufacturer's website and order it directly from the factory (laughs) apparently. Uh, But yeah, I guess it's neither here nor there. So, I mean, well, like the answer is, is that I, I think usually if you crowdsource information, you end up getting a more accurate view of, of what is or is not correct. So, and, and you, you, you kind of see this out. Like I all the time, this is anecdotal, but like I'll, I'll hear about a movie. I'll watch a movie and it'll get like terrible reviews. It'll get bad reviews on Rotten Tomato or something like that. And then I'll look at the audience score and the audience score has like really great sort of like numbers. And you realize that like when someone is writing a review of a product or a movie or, or a restaurant, they're coming to it from like, I don't want to say like elitist, but like a very specific, like critics perspective. I'm trying to elevate sort of the discourse around uh, media or or food or or what have you. And sometimes a restaurant is just supposed to be like cheap and shitty and good. You know, it's like, (laughs) I have to call it gross good, right? Like there are restaurants that like I admit are gross, but like everyone I know loves them. Right. There are movies that like I know are not great movies, but like I'll watch it all the time because I think it's you know because it's not supposed to be good. It's just supposed to. It's supposed hey, to. The right there's time. also yeah. There's also other times where you have the opposite problem where the critics all rave about a movie because it makes you know maybe some political point that they all yeah. you know love or something, and then all the audience are like, whether that point was made or not, this movie sucks. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think I think that's really true. Also, it's like we realize now like there. There are like 8 billion people in the world. Not every piece of content and media is for every single person. So it tends to be that if I really like, you know, if I really like the movie, what about Bob? And I go and look at the reviews, the people who seek out that type of movie are probably more like me. And therefore they're going to rate it in a way that like, you know, I, I, I would appreciate if I'm a healthy food critic for the LA times and I'm tasked with like reviewing a taco stand that sells like the fattiest pork tacos in Los Angeles. I'm not going to review it with the same mindset. We've gotten really far off the topic of Bitcoin, but it's all related, man. It, it absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know like uh, I've watched Steven Soderbergh uh, talk about this and he has basically the exact same reasons. Yeah. And it's like, he's, he's, you know, kind of forced sometimes to, you know, he's expected to make movies based on what some critics would like, as opposed to like wanting to be artistically interesting from an experimental point of view, because he finds it interesting, not necessarily because he's trying to go for universal acclaim. You know, one, one of the things that I think is maybe just tying it back into to Bitcoin just a little, um, 
Bitcoin shouldn't exist where it is in the market right now. If it were up to any of the people who controlled what the, how the market typically looks. If you look at any of the ways it's been described over the last 10 years, it's, it's fake. It's a tool for criminals. It's, you know, rat poison squared, whatever it is, <laughs> despite all of the, you know, all the people who uh, supposedly have a better insight into what is or is not of value or have control over the, the, the financial media, it still succeeds even after losing all of its value multiple times, it still succeeds. And the reason why is because it's, it, 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 it finds its audience. And I think every time there's like this boom cycle and people get a little more interested in sort of like the financial part of it, I, I look at it as an opportunity because I can talk to as many people as possible and say, okay, I'm glad you think that you're going to go to the moon and you're going to make some money off of it, but let's talk about how this actually impacts democracy. Let's talk about how it impacts expression, how it makes people's lives better if it continues to grow at the rate it, it is going. And it might not be two years from now, it might be 50 years from now, but I think it'll happen. You missed one, which was Beanie Babies, uh, which is- Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And, yeah, Tulips. <laughs> I, I, I remember, um, so we started the practice um, at the firm in 2014. And at the time, like no one, like no one had any idea what we were talking about. And um, me and my buddy, Matt, who started it with me. Um, and people would say, oh, it's just like Tula. They would read, oh, it's just like Tula. Like they're some, some of like Dutch botanist experts, right? It's, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, and then and the response, how is it like tulips? And they'd be like, it's a bubble. I'd be like, okay, but how? And then there was never a response after that because you just have the talking points. But like, I've spent so many time, so much time over the years. I'm sure you guys have as also. Oh where, yeah. Where you just like go, let me, let me, let's go out and have a beer. Let's go and have dinner. And we'll just talk about this in like a way that's not antagonistic. And I'll try to like, I'm not selling you anything. I'm not getting a commission off of Bitcoin. I was like, here, watch some Andres Antonopoulos YouTube videos and call me. I'm getting this... a commission off Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> this is just how I know that the bull market really hasn't quite gotten started yet because I haven't heard anything about tulips yet. I, this is actually the one, number one indicator for me is the number of LinkedIn messages I get uh, <laughs> from people wanting me to um, be their lawyer is how I know like what the, the relative price of Bitcoin is because- All right, how's your inbox looking right now? It's really, I mean, the last month or so, it's been really crazy. I think it's like all tied into like the, the DeFi um, boom, which has people really excited, um, I guess. But like in 2017, we were getting maybe three to five messages a day from people who either wanted to raise money through a token sale or had already raised a significant amount of money in a token sale and now needed to be like, well, now what do I do? So I don't have to like give this back or, or get, get arrested. And, <laughs> and, and, and this is sort of like a, you know, the, 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 the issue that you have on like a lot of the legal side is a lot of the decision-making is done on the behest of investors and the investors often want to tie something into a token sale because that's the easiest way for them to make a huge profit on the investments. So you have 
sometimes really good products and really good ideas and really good people shoehorn in this fundraising mechanism mm. that ultimately is not in the best interest of their long-term, their long-term business plan. Or you just have people who ha- can front run and have a lot of money and a lot of marketing capabilities and they say, well, let me do whatever I need. I'm going to 30 exit and figure out the rest when, when, um, when I have the money. And the problem from a perspective of a regulator or a court or just like your parents is Bitcoin, is Ethereum, is an ICO, is DeFi, is blockchain. It's all the same thing. So a lot of us talking to regulators and advocating for our clients is just trying to explain everything that, will, everything that we're not and then now let's talk about what we need to do because, you know, the, the differences between Bitcoin and your typical centralized ICO are the differences between night and day. It's just, it's just completely different. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see a, uh, a, a Justin Twitter bot that just shows every day the number of LinkedIn messages there were. So I can use that as a, just as a, another bull market Technical indicator. Technical analysis. I might, I, might, I might overlay it with the Bitcoin with the big um oh man i we're already at an hour and a half and we haven't even gotten to like the occ announcement and there's just like uh there there's so much to talk about and it feels infinite it's every and the thing that's like exciting right now is every day there's something that's kind of significant happening and because you have more eyes on the industry because the price has gone up and big banking is now like really kind of getting, getting itself in there. Um, it creates a lot of opportunities to, to have these types of conversations and to explain that this is actually safer than you think it is. It's better than you think of it as it is. It's, more, it's both more revolutionary than you think it is and less revolutionary in the sense that not everything in the world needs a blockchain. So those kind of conversations are always fun to have. And t- today's news that I just got was uh, Hester Pierce uh, is going to be at the SEC for another five years. So maybe we'll get a Bitcoin ETF one year. Sign a contract like in basketball? What, what did she say? Um, executive <laughs> calendar number 833 Hester Pierce to be a member of SEC commission for a term expiring June 5th, 2025. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Which uh, I I don't know if that means that we get a Bitcoin ETF, but it's certainly good. It 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 certainly I think is is coming at some point. I mean everyone everyone understands that, but I think the most interesting thing about the OCC there's a lot of interesting things about the OCC uh, decision, but a lot of us knew something like this was going to come because who they put in charge of the OCC. Right. I mean, it was it was it was Coinbase's former uh, general counsel. Mm, yeah. So, so, you know, he's going to be. Maybe crypto friendly is like uh, not the right word, but like understanding of what the reality is of, of folks who are, are, are in the industry. And I think once you start having the, the, the big banks really start to, to put their, their foot in, in, in the water, um, you're going to have regular people be able to interact with this type of technology in a way that they couldn't otherwise. I know people um, like older, older guys and, and uh, at, at my firm who want to invest in Bitcoin 
They want to hold Bitcoin. They understand it because I've told them enough about it, but they don't trust Coinbase, right? But they have a Wells Fargo account. So if they could just go and put in, you know, 10 grand, 50 grand through their Wells Fargo account, they'll hold it. They don't want the, they don't want to be their own bank. They just think it's like, okay, it's a hedge against the dollar. If that's who we get from this next round of adoption, we should be thanking our lucky stars because Bitcoin's going to go up, more people will be comfortable with it and more layers of, uh, of um, use will, will be um, sort of built upon Bitcoin and, and the surrounding economy. All right. Unfortunately, we have to, to close it out at this point. Um, I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I want to keep talking for another hour, but um, it's going to be too long of a podcast episode. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you back on. We're going to have you back on because there's a million other topics. And also there's, um, there's pending litigation and there's litigation I want to engage with you on so that we can go out there and sue people. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Do you, America. Is, that, is that what you do? Uh, do, you, do, do uh, let's talk about your business, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So um, the firm I work for is about 350 lawyers across the country. It's like a big law firm that does a little of everything. Um, my background was in First Amendment litigation uh, since uh, I, I exited law school. At the same time, I had friends who were in the crypto space. So I would kind of shepherd them to the commodities folks and the payments folks at, at the firm, the security folks at the firm. And then over the course of about six years, I've, my practice is now mostly commodities and securities and payments law, uh, but we represent every type of person and entity you can imagine from miners to investment um, and investors to funds to just folks who want to um, test out what the liability is for running different types of, um, you know, uh, interesting business ideas, let's say. All right. Well, I'll, I'll be in touch on the exchange side, I think. Um, yeah, but uh, <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot of fun having you on. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to have to pick this up again because this it's an infinite universe, right? Because there's so many different angles to, to Bitcoin uh, from the legal perspective. It touches on a bunch of different areas that, that you mentioned. It's, 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 it's super fun. And I'll, I'll just leave it with this is I've probably been on, I don't know, 50, 60 panels over the last you know, several years. And every single one of them asked me what a security is. So there's a lot, of, there's a lot that we're not talking about. And my, my goal is to, to talk more about the- Well, this. for the purposes of this podcast, all we need to know is that Bitcoin's not a security, which I think is pretty clearly established. Not, not a security, it's a commodity. All right, thanks for coming on, Justin. Thank and um, thanks to all our listeners for, for listening. Oh, also, if you if our listeners want to express their speech, they should go to <laughs> noted.org slash contribute. And as a political statement, send us money. Uh, and so uh, thank you to all our listeners for doing that. So have a good one. Bye. Jocko, heard General Mattis say that he looks for initiative and aggressiveness in NCOs. I'm not a naturally aggressive leader. Do you believe leaders should be aggressive by nature? When when to be aggressive or when do you be aggressive? Does it come off as fake if not if it's not natural? 
So, you know, obviously this is something we talk about all the time, is that def- being default aggressive is good for leaders. Yes, that is a true statement. There's a dichotomy, obviously, because you can be too aggressive and then things go wrong and things go bad and things don't work. And yes, there are some people that are, let's say, more aggressive by nature. And then let's also remember that being aggressive means a lot more than just being loud, brash, and in your face, right? That is the stereotypical thing that we think of when we think of, oh, that guy's really aggressive. You think this guy's in your face, he's yelling, he's you know pushing people over. That is not the type of aggressiveness that you need to be an effective leader. You don't need to be a loud mouth, you don't need to be brash, you don't need to get in people's faces. What being aggressive means is, is taking action. That's the kind of aggressiveness that I'm talking about. That's the kind of aggressiveness that General Mattis is talking about. And you know, the, the definition, I actually wrote this down, the definition of, of aggressive, or one of the definitions of being aggressive is forceful and sometimes overly assertive pursuit of one's aims. So, first of all, forceful we get, right? Sometimes overly assertive some, means sometimes that you have to go a little bit like harder. And here's why that's important because listen, in combat, almost nothing will happen the way you want it to if you don't force it that way. Right? You are coming against a powerful force, the enemy, nature, time. There's all kinds of things that, that are going against you. It's a losing battle. And if you don't use force of will, then, then, then you're not going to get it done. You have to be aggressive and make things happen. I remember. So there was a, there was we we all got interviewed after we came home from Ramadi, and I remember I was uh, listening to Seth Stone get interviewed, and it was just they were just trying to you know capture whatever information moments historical, uh, uh accounts of what had happened in Ramadi. And and Seth said something along the lines of, every operation we did, you could feel Jocko beating his head against the wall to make things happen. And, and I, you know, of course I laughed. But from his perspective, and it's a good perspective, and it's an accurate perspective, none of this, nothing just kind of, oh, that fell into my lap. That just doesn't happen it doesn't happen in combat. It just doesn't happen in combat. And so, yes, this idea that you're going to be aggressive is 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 very important. But if you think to yourself, well, okay, okay, look, I'm not the type of person that likes to be a loud mouth, likes to shout, likes to yell. Cool, good. It doesn't matter. You don't need to be that way. What it means is, is you need to make things happen. That's what it means. And it can be, this is the good thing about being aggressive. Sure, there's, there's certain parts of your nature that are aggressive, but it can also be trained. You can, you can start to think with an aggressive mindset, which is I am going to take action. I'm going to overcome obstacles. I'm going to push through roadblocks. I'm not going to take no for an answer. And th- those are things that you can train. And, and and how do you train them? Look, when you when you hit an obstacle, you look at it, you you know, you shake your head and you go, cool, let's go. Let's figure this out. There's so often times where people they get told no or they hit an obstacle and it's game over for them. They're just done. They're done training. 
They're over it. Mm-hmm. And your attitude, you have to go, okay, little little roadblock, cool. How am I gonna get through it? How am I gonna get around it? And I used to put people, so to train people to be more aggressive, regardless of what they're, and believe me, I had I had guys, you know, SEAL officers that were coming through that, or, or SEAL chiefs that were coming through, real real passive guys, quiet guys, you know, not the type of person that you would figure, oh, that guy's, oh yeah, that guy's aggressive. You wouldn't characterize him as that. Mm-hmm. But I would, so what I would do is put them in situations where if they didn't make aggressive decisions to make things happen, they were gonna get annihilated. Mm. Put them in training scenarios like that. Okay, oh, you wanna sit here and you wanna wait? Like you're getting attacked and you wanna sit here and you wanna wait, you don't, make a, don't wanna make a decision? Cool. In, in 16 minutes, I will have everyone in your task unit dead. Mm. We will kill them all with paintball. If you and the, and so they learn that, and I go, well, what do you think happened? You know, and they'd say, well, we we started to get surrounded, and and I go, and what did you do? Well, you know, we we held position. Okay, how how long did you hold position for? Oh, we held it for a while. And what did the enemy do? Well, they started to maneuver. And then what'd you do? Well, we held position. And then what the enemy do? Well, they maneuvered more. And then what'd you do? I held position. And then we started taking casualties. And then the enemy maneuvered, and then they closed the distance, and then they took us out. Okay, what do you think would have been better? Well. Perhaps when it first started, before they had us enveloped, I could have made a maneuver to get to another building with some more high ground. Mm, that sounds like a great idea. Next time, why don't you be a little bit more aggressive in making things happen? Okay, put them in the same scenario. They get a little bit more aggressive. They realize that it's that it, it, it serves its function, and they start to develop the attitude, and they start to understand what a lack of aggression will get you, because that's an important thing to know, right? It's not just the carrot, it's the stick. Cool, mm-hmm. if, I do, if I do this aggressive thing, it'll be rewarding. If I don't do something aggressive, we're gonna get annihilated. Mm-hmm. So here's the other thing that you gotta be ready for. So, so if, you're, if you're a person that you lean towards being passive, you've gotta start to lean towards being aggressive, and here's the thing that you gotta remember. You're gonna make mistakes, because when you're aggressive, you're taking more risk, and often you're taking more risk. Now, when you, if you played out the whole matrix of being passive versus being aggressive, I will tell you that being aggressive is the one that ends up on top. Are there, but there are scenarios where your aggressiveness ends up costing you a little bit. That, that absolutely happens. It happens in business, it happens in life, it happens on the battlefield. But overall, being aggressive is what this is why this is why this is where the idea you've this is where the idea of aggressive has to be your default mode this is exactly why aggression has to be your default mode mm-hmm. your default mode is aggressive if your default mode is aggressive and it's not the right answer you just you just use the other answer right, right. your default mode is aggressive that's the why I originally said to these young SEAL officers, your default mode has to be aggressive. So if you're not sure if you should stay or you should go, go to the default, which is gonna be aggressive, because nine times out of 10, seven times out of 10, eight times out of 10, that's gonna be a better move than sitting on your ass and doing nothing. That's what's gonna get you killed. So your default mode is to go. Now, do you always go with your default mode? No, you don't always go with it. It's the default mode. But occasionally, you go, oh, you know what? I'm not gonna go with the default mode. You put it, you pull the setting out and you go into the other mode. Customize it a little Yeah, you bit. customize a little bit for that particular situation. But your default mode is, I'm gonna be aggressive. And that's the, the odds. You want the odds, you wanna stack the odds in your favor. Mm. What is Jason, Jason Gardner says, puts it kind of a cool, like good way to just really wrap your head around like being in a default mode. Something along the lines of like, it's easier or it's better to like 
have to pull someone back totally than have to push them forward kind it's, of, it's, like it's a million times easier to have to pull the reins in on someone on a, on an element on a team yeah, on I mean, a leader on yeah. a person it's a, it's a million times easier to go all right, all right hey come on back right, right. you're going too hard it, then going hey you need to get out there yeah. because by the way i mean if you think about this from a like an actual event unfolding if an event unfolds and you're the person that's on point and you don't react to it properly that that event needs to make it through you to me before I can now assess what I think you should do and then tell you to go do it and then kick you in the ass so you go do it. Mm. I don't want that. Mm. We already lost. Yeah. I want I want you to go, hey, oh, we just got this event started unfolding. I'm on it. And you look back at me, hey, Jocko, I'm solving this problem right now. Oh, what's the problem, right? I don't even yeah. know what the problem is yet. You're already solving it. Yeah. That's what I want. And if I happen to occasionally have to pull the reins on you, I'm more than happy to pull the reins on you. Yeah. What? So yes, that's... Uh, universal it's easier to lead someone that you have to pull the reins on than you have to push yeah we'd rather pull back than push forward and that that idea of being aggressive is is part of that so I want all my I want all all my subordinate leaders to be aggressive and as a leader I know that my subordinates are going to make mistakes while they're learning to be aggressive and even when they're being aggressive and I'm, they're f- considered fully trained and fully ready, they're still gonna make mistakes. I'm still gonna make mistakes being aggressive. I'm gonna make mistakes, yeah. but we're gonna play the odds. Yeah. And the odds are, the odds are you be aggressive. I'm trying to think of a good blackjack. You know, you ever play blackjack before? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like there's, you know, dealers showing a whatever, Dealers, 20, d- dealers, 20. dealers showing twenty, and you're showing a fourteen. You gotta hit it. Like that, that's the odds. <laughs> yeah. The odds are you gotta hit it. Mm-hmm. Dealers showing a fourteen, and you're showing a fourteen. You gotta let. You gotta. You gotta hold. Let the dealer. Let the dealer take the hit. Do they call it? I forget what. Do they call it showing twenty? Because you know one is down, one is up. Yeah. Right. Do, yeah. is it, do they call that showing twenty? Let's well, say you have a ten. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, because or, you don't know what the other card is. Right. You just assume. But it's you a 10. assume that it's a ten. So he's showing yes. twenty. Okay. Yeah, Man, I haven't yeah. played blackjack in a while. I can't, I can't believe I'm like struggling with my thought process around blackjack around the numbers. <laughs> no, that's how. Bro. Yeah. It was it was more of a terminology situation. Yeah, but you play the odds. Yeah, and there's rules when you're playing the odds in blackjack. There's rules of yeah, like, like, what you hit and what yeah. you don't, and you stick with the rules. The odds are going to be on your side. Yeah, yeah, more than if you don't. If you just sit back, and that's and so we're playing the odds. We're playing the odds with leadership and the odds are your default mode not that you never come out of default mode the odds are you be aggressive so back to this question here was another couple things in this question when to be aggressive look the default mode is be aggressive and sometimes you look at it you go now's not the time Mm -hmm. does it come off as fake or not natural hey it's not being aggressive from this perspective isn't how you're acting it's the decisions that you're making it's the decision I i was working with a client yesterday and we were talking about data. I think it was a client call or it was another. Data. Yeah, it was about data. data. And it was actually the very similar question. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm not very aggressive and I'm more of a data guy and I like numbers and that's how I roll. And yet I'm not getting recognized. And I was like, cool, get aggressive with your data. Put your data together and present it up the chain of command. Not to say, hey, look at me, but to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You're being aggressive with your data. You're showing them what's happening because the guy wasn't getting the recognition that he needed, right? And he was, so that meant 
his senior leadership didn't know what he was doing, which meant he's not getting the resources that he needs to do his job. And instead of being like, hey, this is what I need because he's not an aggressive guy, he's sitting back and just getting resources stripped away from him. I said, cool, you're a data guy. Record the data of what you're doing, present it, and the da- let the data speak. Get default aggressive with your data. <laughs> uh, did I miss anything here? Yeah, so it's not natural. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you all of a sudden start to try and act, yeah. you know, this this new way. Yeah, yeah, Brad, don't do that. Yeah, it's 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 probably not going to go good. Now, can you do you sometimes have to learn like, okay, you know what, I got to stand up and say something. I got to put word out, right? Yeah. You know, and I watched many guys in my career go through the transition of being a little bit less aggressive and they realize, you know what, I'm in charge of this thing, I gotta go put the word out. Mm-hmm. And and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, those kind of, for lack of a better term, superficial personality traits that are aggressive. Some people say, oh, well, that's that's aggressive. Yes. You know, where yeah. there's more depth to it. <laughs> we're like, because again, like, you know, you, you can think of like a, 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 I don't know, some fictional, or maybe even not fictional, like, maybe Japanese business tycoon mm-hmm. who doesn't say nothing really, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, he's making aggressive moves. Like yes. that's an aggressive guy. Kind of, you know, true. there's the, it goes deep. And then, you know, a guy who, how you were saying, like he yells and screams and has a loud voice or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, if that's your personality, that's going to land for sure. But it's more about the decisions you make. If well, you, when try you to say s- it's going to land, what do you mean? Cause that might just make a bunch of people angry. Right. right. Sometimes well, it depends but, on what but, you're yelling and screaming for it. sure. But, but what, what you're saying is there could be someone that's loud and scream, but they're, but they're, they're using that to cover the fact that they're actually not making any moves. Potentially, potentially, yeah. so, yes. So the yelling and screaming has very little to do with aggressive movement on the battlefield. Yes, is what you're saying. Oh, I'm saying there's more depth to it. But the point actually is is that um, you should have just taken that point because that was a good point. You should have <laughs> taken that one and run with it. But right. I'll let you continue. All right, this one is probably less gloriful. But nonetheless, if you if because he's concerned about faking it or coming off as fake, mm-hmm. where no if need you're, if you're focused on those like a superficial elements of of your personality being aggressive. That's the part they're going to smell is fake. If you're trying to change that part of it, you know, like, Oh, this bro, we used to have this in seventh grade. He was, I don't know. I think it's like a music teacher. I don't know. Something super aggressive music teacher. He was like a nice dude, like really nice. (laughs) And there's there's not too many stereotypical hyper aggressive music teachers. No, man. He was, no, he wasn't. I had, I had an assistant platoon commander and aggressive, great guy. And he, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, as, as I got to know him, you know, and, and I was like, so what'd you study in college? And he's like, percussion. <laughs> yeah, man. Dig what? it. I'm, I'm a, what are you talking about? I was like, what? Concussion? What? He's like, percussion. Drumming. Yeah. He was a drum. He started drumming in college, Dang. which is just it's kind going of going deep in percussion. Yeah. I didn't know you could major in percussion. I mean, I guess, but anyways, the history of percussion. Yeah. Um, Properties of percussion. My point is, had he become a music teacher, Might he be probably aggressive. would have been a, because he was an well, aggressive assistant platoon commander. Yeah. Had to, had to pull the reins on him sometimes. <laughs> well, He'd be out there getting after it. This guy was not aggressive at all. He was like a nice guy trying to please everyone, you know, short term and long term kind of thing, which didn't really work with, I think, I'm pretty sure it was seventh grade. So he was like, I remember guys would just run circles around him, you know, like people wouldn't listen and all this. Mm-hmm. Like he, he had trouble controlling the class. We'll say mm-hmm. that. And then at one, t- one time, 
he tried to switch his personality. Yeah. One time he dropped a book. You know how like sometimes when you drop a, drop a big bu- book? Yeah, sometimes when it hits correctly, mm-hmm. it's like boom, it's like a fire. So one time, bro, he tried to do that and it didn't like, make the sound. And like no one, everyone was like, what the fuck is this guy doing? He's like looking at everybody with his eyes all big. Nonetheless, I think that was like, I think he got aggressive one day and people like shut up and we're like, hey, this guy's like, you know how when someone's never aggressive and then mm-hmm. they start yelling, you're like, everyone kind of be quiet. Like, yeah. dang, this guy's yelling. So I think he, he might have got a small little payoff one day. And then from then on, he started to try to be, like, aggressive. Mm-hmm. But everyone could smell it on yeah. him. Like, bro, that's not even your thing. So he, well, you it, it be worked against him. Yeah, yep. he, everyone was kind of laughing at yeah, him. Now, now he's like a weirdo. Yep. So no no, no, no need to do that. No need. Don't be throwing the music book on the table. No, no. The big textbook. It was on the floor, too. But, yeah, it didn't work. Unfortunately.